0: Verge podcast with Neil it Neil, we've got a, a great start to the new year with Dennis Purcell. For listeners not familiar with Dennis, who is he?
1: I am incredibly excited to welcome Dennis to the show. Uh, Dennis is the founder of Aisling Capital, uh, which is a prominent uh, biotech uh, healthcare-focused venture fund. Uh, Previously, he served as a senior managing uh, partner. He was also a managing director of life sciences investment banking at uh, Hamburg and Quist uh, before they were acquired by JP Morgan. Uh so Dennis has has a sort of a, a long history in the industry, both from helping companies raising capital uh to being a, a longtime investor in biotech. So I'm really excited to kick off the year, uh, to gain Dennis's perspective of uh what he's seen throughout his career as the industry has has evolved and changed.
0: He's had great visibility into the growth of the biotech industry going back to his Days at Habrick and Quist and the start of what is now the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference. He's at Aisling Capital. Where does Aisling Capital fit into the world today?
1: Yeah, I mean Aisling is, is, is very active, uh, focused um, on, on you know biotech investments. Um, you know, I think their their sweet spot is it, at least when they started, their sweet spot was later stage. Uh, investments, um, and so you know, I think you know, you, you can go to the Asian Capital website and look at their portfolio. I won't get into the details there, but you know, they they have a, a, a you know top tier portfolio of companies, um, and I you know, I think their differentiation when Dennis started the firm was a focus on later stage. I think that's where he really saw. Uh, a gap in the market. Um and so I think, you know, Ageling was really built on that. And and you know, they've they've expanded dramatically since then, but really excited to get Dennis's perspective um on on what he's excited about today. Although later stage by
0: today's measure can be phase two.
1: <laughs> True. Yeah.
0: <laughs> we're we're sitting down to to talk with Dennis after what's been a, a great year for biotech fundraising, but a, a turbulent one for biotech stocks. Now the, the industry gets ready for J.P. Morgan. What's the backdrop for today's conversation? How does that set the stage?
1: Yeah, well, I think it, in in many ways, the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference uh, usually takes place the second week of January. And I think in many ways, it is a way to sort of kick off the new year. Um, and, you know, a, a lot of companies, a lot of investors um, are 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 there usually in person? This year is going to be virtual, but it's a great way just to meet with 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 um with your know, old friends, colleagues, um, and and sort of get the year started out on a on a positive note. Um, and so, you know, using JP Morgan as a, as the backdrop for what we're talking about today is I, I really wanted to get Dennis's perspective, not just really on how the uh, conference has evolved, but really how the industry has evolved since his early days. Um, you know, really being one of the founders of the original conference, and what he's seen as an investor during you know his his decades long career investing in this space, you know, I, I think we'll get into the cyclical nature of biotech. You know, there I think companies raised over eighty six billion dollars last year, um, which beat twenty twenty to record, which was a record year by over thirty percent. So the the industry as a whole is a washing capital. Uh, there was 28 billion dollars of venture funding raised by uh, healthcare companies again, I mean a dramatic record I think 2020 there was there was about 17 billion so we're seeing a large amount of capital flowing into the space we're seeing the the landscape shift um, meaning the types of investors that are participating in biotech and early stage biotech has dramatically changed from, you know, a handful or, or dozen, you know, specialist firms to a lot of generalist firms to a lot of family offices to hedge funds. Uh, and all of these folks are moving more upstream, chasing earlier stage deals, moving into the private market. So I think Dennis will have a really interesting perspective of uh, the, the, you know, what that means for the companies and what that means for investors at the end of the day and how that may impact returns going forward. Well, if you're already... I am ready. Let's do it. Hi, Dennis. I'd like to extend a warm welcome and say a big thank you for joining me on the show today.
2: Thanks, Neil. Thanks for having me.
1: As I was thinking about how to tee up the episode today, I realized that you have, you and I have known each other for about a decade now, if you can believe that. And I really just want to start off by saying that I, I've always viewed you as a, as a thought leader in the space and, and in many ways a trailblazer. And so I'm really excited to dive into what you've seen over your career working closely with and investing in biotech companies. Uh, you know, first during your time as a life sciences investment banker, and then of course, uh as the founder of Aisling Capital. Uh and, and since it's quickly approaching next week, in fact, I also want to touch on the annual JP Morgan Healthcare Conference, since I know you played an intimate role in starting the conference uh many years ago when you led banking at Hamburg and Quist. Um, So with all of that said, today, I'm excited to do a deep dive and talk about the business of investing in novel science and biotech companies. As Bruce Booth said recently in one of his blogs, we've now entered the 46th straight quarter of biotech activity. New equity issuance for biotech in 2021 has broken records for the amount of capital raised, even topping 2020, which was a record year. Uh, there were 78 biotechs that went public in 2020. I think there were uh, over 90 that went public in 2021. But the industry always, it hasn't always been that way. It hasn't always been a Washington capital. So Dennis, I want to turn to you and start with a little history of the biotech industry. I'd love to go back in time and understand the early days of biotech and how you've seen the industry evolve over time to where it is today.
2: Great. Thanks, Neil. And uh I think the uh, the J.P. Morgan conference has kind of grown since when we started it way back in the uh, late '80s. Uh, but uh, I, I think that um, the, introdu- the general introduction to biotech really started, I think, with the uh, initial public offering of Genentech back in the um, uh, 1980. Um, I remember I remember this because uh, um, nobody knew what a biotech company was. Um, <laughs> let alone going public with a money-losing biotech company, let alone with a company that nobody knew how to pronounce its name properly. Um, And so people on TV were kind of scratching their heads like, what's going on here? So stock opens at 15. Within two hours, it's at 80. And back then, that was just unheard of, um, that something like this would happen. So all of a sudden, biotech kind of sprung onto the scene and it, it started to capture some people's um, imagination. Uh, and then we had, um, after that, people started to really start companies and Genentech could do it and Genentech could go pu- public as a money losing proposition, a uh, company, um, you know, and and it looked like it was able to generate a lot of capital. A lot of people decided to try to start their, um, their own companies. And, and they started kind of picking, if you will low-hanging fruit like human growth hormone replacement therapy if you will human growth hormone things like that and and then what we had was um uh a whole spate of companies that started throughout the 80s and and a very small list if you will of, of dedicated vc funds like kleiner perkins and mayfield and you had a couple of um and, and you just had a couple of dedicated big mutual funds, people like Fidelity and Wellington. They're still around today, um, but it was pretty much a uh, um, an insider's game, if if you will. Uh, and then in the and then uh, uh, and then the boom in the stock market in the early '90s enabled a lot of these companies that started in the '80s to go public. So all of a sudden, we saw one company after another go public in the early kind of ni- late '80s, early '90s, and these were money-losing companies. They had exciting science. Um, people had made a fortune on Genentech, um, and all of a sudden, we had a number of these public comp- public biotech companies. I, I would say the general public still didn't know what biotech was, and it was still pretty dominated by specialists and. And people that knew what was going on, and, and you know, some of the companies were real and grew up uh, to be what they are today the Gileads of the world, and cell genes and the like. Um, others, uh, people have well, long forgotten. Um, and you know, was cr- criticized that some of the companies that were started and went public were more like science projects rather than, than companies. Um, uh, but nonetheless, all of a sudden there was an industry. People started to uh, um, cover the industry, cover these companies. We didn't, no, Nobody knew how to value them because, you you know, generally you value things on a price earnings basis, which wasn't possible here, or a price to revenue basis or something like that. That wasn't possible. So we're trying to learn how to value these types of companies. Um, and then we got to a point where the, uh, uh, so the, the, uh, metric for the industry was that, uh, or the saying in the industry was you had a choice um, or, or Merck's market value by, was higher than the market value of the entire biotech industry. You know, through most of the you know, for a long period of time, up until the last few years actually and uh, and the question everybody asked was, do you, you want to own the entire biotech industry or do you want to own Merck? Yeah. And, you know, today, you know, we have one in Moderna, and Moderna is a greater market value than milk. So uh, um, uh, that's changed kind of on its head. And, And as we've evolved here over the, you know, 2010s and teens and the like, the science has really gotten... Incredible. Uh, more than we, more than the public knows, more than investors know, and you know it, 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 whether it's in immune oncology or gene therapy or gene editing or, 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 edit or the rest. And in the last ten years or so, we started to see a broadening, maybe fifteen, broadening of the base of the investors uh, to include include more um, uh, generalists. And as these investors kind of came in, sort of the, the Supported the uh, uh, industry, more and more companies were able to get funded. I, I you know, taking Bruce, Bruce's numbers a little bit further, um, since 2015, we've had over almost 430 new IPOs. It's incredible. What happened, in, and, and what's happened is that Putin, in, the, in the investing community, used to have. Um, uh, People that did early stage investing, people that did late stage investing, people invested in IPOs, and I mentioned people invested in public markets, hedge funds. Today what you find is everybody's kind of doing everything. You see VCs investing in public markets, you see public market people investing in private companies and the like, and, you know, now we have, uh, um, you know, almost 700 just public companies. Uh, and one of the issues that Causing I hear over and over from companies and boards is uh, difficulty with talent. It's really hard to find people. That, you, know? you know, it's not the capital. It's not the science or anything like that. So what I hear from all these old boards is that uh, and uh, companies is that it's really hard to find talent with all the new companies um, that are out there. And the type of talent we need today is somewhat. Even different than it was five or ten years ago it used to be that in this industry you got the science and you got through the fda and you got approval and that was the goal that was the goal line that was the win um and you could go on to the next thing um today just getting approval of the drug isn't even is isn't enough um you know the role of the payer and the like we never thought of very much through the history of the industry and now the role of the payer is becoming much more important and so we even have to ask ourselves really early on, um, will that will somebody pay for these drugs? Uh, so, it's, so it's evolved. It's evolved from the IPO of Genentech that went through the roof in the first couple of hours of trading all the way to where we are today with, maybe, you know, five, six thousand companies out there and six these seven
1: companies and, and, you know, capital coming from all of the world being put into the industry. Dennis, there, there's there's so much to dive into in what you just said, um, and and I couldn't agree more. I, I think you know the the days of just getting approval for your product are long gone. Right, approval is is one step along the continuum, and obviously reimbursement is is critical. Um, I wanna I do wanna dive into a, a very specific point that you made um, earlier, which was. You know the number of biotechs that have gone public that you've seen over your career and try to differentiate between an investable company and a science project what what lessons have you learned or what themes have you seen uh during your career to try to differentiate what looks like a science project from what looks like an investable and potentially could be successful company
0: one yeah
2: sure you know one of the um one of the ways people define companies in the past and it's kind of starting to converge today was you're either a platform company and platform companies were in vogue because they were they had their own platform that could spit out products um, multiple products off the same platform and sometimes investors really like those those platform types of companies um because they could spin out a lot of different products. Um, you know, on the other hand, the product companies, product companies were ones that were just working as I said on products. And what we found, what we found, and we don't find it as much anymore, but what we found kind of, as we were evolving in the industry, was there were a lot of companies that just started that were based on one product. They It, it was a uh, um, uh, all or nothing. And if the drug failed, the company was going to go out of business and drug work, we kept on going. And, um it was intolerable risk actually when we go back and when you go back and think about it it was an intolerable risk for the industry It used to be when one company failed hard to believe today i guess but it used to be that when one company failed the entire industry would go down and if one company succeeded the entire industry's stocks would go up um so these companies that that had one product bets that were binary yes or no were ones that really shouldn't be in the public markets because um, I don't want, I don't want to say it was like gambling, but it, it was it was binary, and those are the ones that you wanted to kind of stay away from because with clinical trials and product development, who knows? That's a that's a risk, risky risky business.
1: Yeah, and it's it's amazing how much the industry has evolved in even a relatively short time. I mean, I, I remember when I started my investment banking career, and that was about two thousand. For uh, you know, most of our clients at that time were those single asset binary type biotech companies that had you know one lead candidate, and they were putting everything into that lead candidate, and it, it was sort of a roll of the dice. Um, and and you see that less and less today. Although those are certainly still out there, I, I think that's also a sort of a nice segue into how things have have changed in terms of the the nature of the type of company that is able to go public these days. I think. You know, you know, I remember not that long ago, companies had to have candidates in clinical trials to be able to garner, uh, interest from public market investors. It seems like today that companies can go public pretty easily without even having a candidate in the clinic. And I I think, in fact, over the past, you know, probably two years, Majority of IPOs were preclinical or phase one. And I think that's drastically different than a decade ago. So I, I love love your thoughts on on just the investor demand out there for these these earlier stage companies.
2: Um, sure. And, and, and when we first started taking companies public, there were certain
1: boxes that
2: you checked. You know, did you have a good VC? Um, did you have a good board? Did you have a corporate partner, you know, was Merck or Pfizer or Bristol or somebody a partner that validated the science? And that was one way that investors could really um, figure out whether there was some validity to the company or not Um, to go to to kind of add on to what you said. Neil. in the last couple of years, um, and I find this a little staggering, almost 95 percent of the companies that went public, almost 95 percent were phase two or earlier. And you're absolutely right. The majority were preclinical. And so um, and if you look at the valuations today and we do have, you know, this industry is a boom and bust industry and we've had the wind on our back for a long time. Um, last year was a tough year, but um, the last number of years have been pretty good. Um, you know, you look at these IPOs and they have started their correction already, but they were kind of priced to perfection. When you start pricing preclinical, assets that are valuing them at four or $500 million. Um, you know, you're paying for perfection. You're paying for tomorrow's perfection today and hope the company will grow into it. And you know, that three, $400 million was what you used to pay for a blockbuster drug that just got approved. Um, and today you're paying it for a couple of mouse studies. Um, so. uh, there's going to be a there's going to be an interesting time coming up when all these companies these that as you as you noted the companies number of companies went public in the last couple of years made promises to investors about when they were going to enter the clinic um, how how it was going to do in the clinic all that kind of stuff they're going to have to deliver on those promises and we'll see what happens because they're not going to be the uh, you know as we know it it never goes according to plan so right now it's a willy nilly kind of Um, going public i think that's ended a little bit um, as we speak here at the beginning of january um there have been a couple of new public offerings and so on maybe it'll continue for a a bit longer but the market in general has really started to correct on the uh, uh some of these companies i think the median uh price of uh ipos over the last 18 months or so is down about 20 25%. Twenty-five percent. So there has been a correction, but um, there has been really no discernibility of you know who can and who can't go public. Um, how can and, you know? And, and, and quite frankly, how couldn't? How can there be when you're dealing with preclinical data? I mean, in some ways, that's the realm of the venture capital community.
1: Yeah, I, absolutely. The, the other stat that I recently saw was the the median time from founding to IPO has gone. From ten years, uh, roughly twenty twenty, I think um, it took ten years from founding to IPO in twenty twenty to only four years from founding to IPO in twenty twenty one, which again is, is sort of astounding. And you know, Dennis, that's, that speaks to what we we're just talking about—the demand for earlier stage companies in the public markets. And I guess you know, this is there, there's sort of two two parts to this question. Number one, you know, has the fundamental science advanced that much? And is that the fundamental driver of more interest in the space, or is it is it pure speculation or is it more of a macro theme that there there's a greater number of investors out there as you mentioned before investors are seeking alpha by looking earlier and earlier, and that it's it's just you know a fundamental macro question of of seeking alpha and trying to generate yield uh and so they're 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 taking on more risk and the biotech industry and many of these companies are the beneficiary of that,
2: yeah, yeah yeah. And just to add to what you were saying before, you know, to that ten, which is really astounding, ten years to four years in terms of going public. In that same time frame, the valuations have gone up three times than they um, were back then. So not only are you getting to the market sooner, you're getting to the market a whole lot uh, with a whole lot bigger valuations. So it is um, interesting, like that. I think that I think that certainly the science for sure is. Um, moving at an incredible pace and um you know you don't look much past the uh vaccine world to, for that but um uh i think i think it's driven by a, a, a host of factors that have kind of come together over the last few years um on the one hand you have all these new generalist investors that have come in family offices for example there's a there's a huge family office world out there. Um, uh, There's going to be the biggest intergenerational transfer of wealth ever in the history of our country in the next 25 years. And all these offices have been set up um, and Uh, given that biotech is now more mainstream, they want to be in biotech, but they don't really know how to be in biotech. They're, they're doing it based upon, you know, their next door neighbor heard something from a friend who's a doctor, blah, blah, blah. And, and so you got you got them coming in somewhat indiscriminately. Um, then you have a group of, uh, um, people that just play momentum. So for a while there it was a pretty easy game, particularly if you're like a crossover investor, but any investor, if you just bought the IPOs for a while, they were just all going up. So you didn't have to do anything. You just bought bought on the IPO and the stocks would, uh, um, uh, would trade up. So, um, you know, they, they'll, 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 they'll stay in the game as long as the uh, momentum's there and the, the family offices will stay in the game, um, uh and we'll see whether they have the stomach to stay in the game once we have start having down rounds or additional financing and things like that that hasn't hit yet we'll see what happens what happens there um i think you um i think in the last couple of years we also have like lack of alternatives you know where where else do you go um the uh stock market was at an all-time high interest rates at all time low everybody's looking for something and so i think you, we generated some of those types Um, And I I think we generated, quite frankly, a whole bunch of FOMO types, Um, you know, when you see what Moderna has done in the last uh, year and a half, um, I think that people are all looking for the next one. So some of those people have joined. So so I think a mix of the generalists and the momentum people and the lack of alternatives and looking for the next Moderna, et cetera, have all kind of come at the same time to really make the market do pretty well up until, you know, this year, (laughs) you know, this year that the uh, XBI was way down relative to um, uh, uh, the S&P and the like. And in fact, I'm, as an investor in a number of these hedge funds, interestingly, the spread of of, um, returns of ones that I am aware of go from plus Plus thirty five percent for the year to minus minus thirty five percent for the year, and these are these are, and these are, these are the specialists.
1: Yeah, and, and to answer your point, I think the XBI was was down about thirty percent last year, so so no question of a rough rough year for biotech overall. I, I I do want to dive into this this notion of the changing landscape that you've mentioned because I think it has evolved pretty dramatically from seeing you know more of the 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 generalist funds come into the biotech world. The family offices participating in both the public and private markets, uh, for that matter. I mean, we, we've seen an increasing frequency, certainly in the private markets, of these you know mega rounds that are hundred-plus million-dollar Series A rounds, and, and sometimes multiples of that. Um, you know, everyone is 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 chasing yield to to some extent, uh, taking on more risk. H- how do you how do you see the changing landscape um, affecting potential future returns?
2: Yeah, um, I mean, when we talk about things being priced to perfection and the runs that we've had, I mean, the the, the math just follows. The returns have to go. Or if you look at a, if you look at a, uh, uh, just to do quick math, you know, we're some of some of these pre-clinical companies are trading upwards of a billion dollars or phase one companies. And if you gave them a 30 multiple, that means they made $30 million in net income roughly. And that would imply that they had $150 million of sales today. So in other words, if today I had 150 million of sales, I earned 30 million on that, give me a 30 multiple, 33 million, I picked the multiple You know, I'm worth a billion dollars. That means I have $150 million of sales today. And yet I'm getting that. And yet I'm getting value when I'm still, you know, five or seven years away from approval. I have clinical risk, I have regulatory risk. Um, And yet how many drugs actually get to 150 million sales? So the returns are going to be it's going to be very, very, um, you know, uh, selective. And, you know, the math just is tough. If you look around, you know, Um, just to put it in perspective in terms of even capital needs, if you look around Kendall Square and you, and you count the number of biotech companies, which is doable, you just count the number of companies and you, um, say that they're both working on, or they're all working on two products, which I think is conservative. I mean, most companies we see have, you know, five, six products that they're working on in various stages of development. And then you say... Take all those companies in Kendall Square, just Kendall Square, three block radius. Uh, take all those companies, just say they're working on two products. And then let's say that all these companies are two-thirds more efficient than everybody else. They can, they can develop these drugs at one-third the cost. So, you know, relatively conservative. Count the, count the number of companies, we know that. Number of products being worked on two, that's pretty light. I mean, that's light and you can do it at one third the cost. You multiply that out. The need in those three, and Kendall square um, is $1 trillion. And that's, and that's, and that, and I don't think any of that would mean, and that's a pretty conservative. So you look at that and you see all these new companies and you see what the need is, it's going to be interesting because we've started so many companies and so many products, and, you know, and now let's move it out of Kendall square and let's move it to San Francisco or let's move it to gene therapy or let's move it to anti-infectors or let's move it to, you know, wherever you I mean, the amount of money that we're going to need or just going to be required is really kind of something. So there's, there has to be a culling out process because it's, it's just, yeah, too, too much. But when, when I just, for the heck of it, one day did that analysis about Kendall square, I kind of, my jaw dropped when I, did, when I did the math, um, um, because if you're being priced at, like you should be at doing a hundred, $200 million of sales today, and you're not even a clinic, they're, they're giving you credit for doing, have doing a hundred, $200 million of sales, you should disconnect somewhere. Um there, but I will say the you know I, I, but I do think the money's gonna keep coming. I mean, one of the big supporters of the industry over the years has been the endowments and the pension funds um and you know at the beginning, these pension funds and endowments only invested a couple percent of their endowment in alternative investments like private equity or timber or oil and gas or venture capital. Um and the like, and then uh yale Yale's endowment started to put lots of money into alternative investments, and they really had outshone they were the best performer over number number of years um and these pension funds are in trouble right now i mean they they're not they're not generating the returns that they uh need for their obligations to pay their, their retirees so instead of like three or 4% allocations to private equity or or I should say alternative investments, they've kind of upped it to 15 or, you know, 20%. Um, so they, they're going to be a main, they're big, they're huge, and they're going to be in this industry. And I think they're going to be in it to stay. And then you also have, um, You know, companies that are starting to uh, do their own venture funds. It seems like every big company now has their own (coughs) venture fund. and Almost every university has their own venture fund. So um, the capital seems to be there. What what it means for the future returns, given where we're priced today, uh, you know, that's a question. I think we probably are just a little too much priced toward perfection right now.
1: So, Dennis, I I think you bring up a a bunch of great points. And, I, you know, I have mixed feelings about this because on one hand, more capital flowing into the biotech space means more money for R&D, more capital going to develop potentially life-saving treatments. So I think that's that's a net positive probably overall for humanity and society. But as an investor, I think to your point, it it does make me nervous. You know, valuations are very, uh, very full right now, if not a little on the bubbly side. Um, and so I think you know that there is definitely some some uh, caution there from the investor point of view. I, I do want to talk about one other um, aspect of how the financing landscape has evolved, and that is the, the sort of the growing activity around SPACs or special purpose acquisition companies. You know, Dennis, given your background, I mean, SPACs are nothing new; they've been around for a long time now, and they've made a resurgence over probably the past two two or three years. How do you view? Spacs and how do you see them playing a, a longer term role in in the biotech industry?
2: Sure, they made they made quite a splash earlier this year, and um, if the numbers serve me right, last year there was about six hundred spacs done, and about twenty percent of them or so were healthcare spacs. That's one hundred twenty. How many of those are life sciences um, specialized? I'm not sure, but some sub portion of that. Uh, and there are a lot of spacs that are. Um, uh, Uh, on file there's another 300 specs that are waiting to price their own spec um and so i think there's a debate here about whether this is going to be another source of capital for the industry or whether this is going to be just a flash in the pan and you and, and people are kind of passionate both ways here um i think that If you talk to capital markets people, some of the banks, like uh, you know the Bank of America or Lea Inc or places like that, that fund the industry, they would they would argue that they're um, going to be permanent sources of capital here. They're legitimate ways to raise capital, and there are uh, lots of good things about them. You know, you're, you're, you're they're faster. You know, right. you have less negotiation, things like that. Um, so the caveat on the plus side of them is that generally when these SPAC deals are done, they're done with pipes attached. So you bring in other investors uh, uh, when you do the merger with the acquired company. And one of the questions is, will the pipe market continue or not? Um, because, uh, you well know, will, will they continue to play on with the pipes? um, um the, 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 The flip side of the the anti, you know, slash in the pan group um, would say that, and I have have some sympathy for this, that uh, it's hard enough to get recognized in the community because there's so many companies. And at least if you go public through a regular IPO, you have three or four banks. There's some there's some people out there that investors can call and say, hey, what's going on with the company? Things like that. When you do a SPAC, you're really doing it without any, um, quote unquote, institutional ownership. And one of the things I hear over and over and over again is how hard it is to get people's attention, uh, investors' attention. Um, and i talk when i talk to investors and we see it ourselves um you know it's a, the job to know all the companies out there but with the explosion of them it's it's darn near impossible <clears throat> let alone impossible to pick the ones who are going to win so the downside here is the SPAC market is one where you might be able to get public and it might be faster and it might be easier um, but you may get lost in the shuffle afterwards so um, we'll see. In life sciences, it's going to be a very interesting time this year because toward the end of the year, and particularly this time next year, January, February, March—I say December, January, February, March—if um, you don't do a merger, you have to give your money back to in, within two years. You have to give your money back to the investors, and there have been very few life science life sciences SPACs done relative to the number that are out there. So as we approach mid end of this year, middle of this year, and and we don't see mergers being done, it'll be interesting to see what these spacs are going to do because it's not cheap to set up a spac. It's not cheap to go through the SEC, and if you don't find a merger partner, you got to give the money back. And they're all coming due toward the end of the year and the beginning of next year. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how this evolves um, over the next, you know, six months from now, nine months from now. Um, and and what happens to all these SPACs out there? Because we certainly have, a, you know, I I think there's maybe, you know, somewhere 40, 50 have really life sciences oriented SPACs that are out there waiting to do a deal. They have to do a deal within a year or give their money back to investors.
1: Yeah. And and the thing that makes me particularly nervous about just the, the whole structure of the SPAC, right, as you said, they need to return money to investors that they don't do a deal. They need to do a deal. So, uh, is is the quality of that deal p- potentially subpar? If they're having trouble finding a high quality company, right? Maybe they would rather get something done than nothing, uh, as opposed to returning capital to investors. So that whole thing makes me a little nervous. Um,
2: yeah, and the, and the only check on <coughs> excuse me, the only check on that is that the deal has to be approved by the spec owners. Now the question is: Are the SPAC owners um, qualified to evaluate these deals? But you, to to your point, that, that I guess that's what I was kind of trying to get at: the, the um, uh, urgency of getting a deal done might cause some irrationality. But it, but it may but they may get shot down because the owners of the SPAC say that's crazy. You know, we're not doing that. Just give us our money back.
1: Yeah, as you said, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the coming months here. Well, I, you know, I think this is also probably a nice segue to my, my next question, because um, because the whole stack phenomenon certainly makes me nervous. What keeps you up at night as as an investor in this space?
2: Yeah, I guess uh, um, in some ways it doesn't, but um, there's a few things we all that i really always have to fight. Um, and, and kind of stay on your toes. Um, it's it's hard to fight. You have to, or at least in my mind, kind of fight going against uh, just going with the crowd. Because sometimes you can look really stupid in the short term when things are going really, really well and genomics companies are hot, hot as hot you can get and gene, you know, whatever they are. And, you know, sure enough, this industry is boom or bust. And if you just kind of follow the crowd and follow what's hot, I think you get burned a a bit. So, so I'm, I'm trying to fight that instinct. Um, uh, I'm trying to fight the instinct right now saying, Hey, you know, anybody, any of these companies right now can go public, even if they're preclinical because that's not going to last. So I can't look at trying to invest in companies and kind of flip them. uh, You know, when you say four years, they probably come to us when they're already two or three years in. So I can't, I'm trying to fight the impulse to say, our exit is going to be an IPO.
0: Um,
2: uh, I'm also trying to fight the impulse of doing relative analysis. So, you know, my competitor A is trading at 700 million. Um, why am I only trading at 200? I must be a steal or I'm way undervalued. Um, and I, I more than once I've kind of seen and been burned by that kind of thinking. You know company A and B are my competitors, and they're trading at three times what I am. I have to be really undervalued um <clears throat> excuse me um and then i you know I guess it's a t- worn cliche, but i i the more I go on the more I believe it it's kind of management 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 for us for um if, if you look at companies that succeed, they have management teams behind them that have really adapted to being able to pivot when they needed to pivot, um, nothing ever goes in a straight line. So uh, I, I think I mentioned earlier before, one of the things I'm hearing is the, the challenge of finding talent. So, you know, where's the talent coming from um, is also something I think about a lot.
1: Yeah, all, all, all good points. And, you know, I guess the sort of flip side of that question is, what you know, are there certain trends or certain technologies that you're particularly excited about these?
2: Well, I think one of the things as an industry we have to think about a little bit here is that um, you know, the last half a decade, cancer and rare diseases have really been in vogue um, for good reason. I mean, they can get, the, the reimbursement isn't as bad, um, road to approval is not bad. But if you look at the pipelines of the big pharmas and you look at, look at what's been approved by the FDA and what a lot of biotechs are working on, um, we're working on um, you know, narrow and narrow indications of smaller and smaller populations and, and primarily cancer and rare diseases. Um, so one of the things that I'm thinking about um, is how, how do we make a broader impact on society and, that, and stuff like, you know, who's doing chronic diseases right now? Um, and, you know, where are we headed with mental health? You know, the New York Times a couple of weeks ago had a, above the full story. You know, hundred thousand people died of um, overdose last year. Um, you know, wh- where are we going with all this? Where we look at the de- depression statistics coming out of COVID and things like that. So, I'm excited about areas that the industry has not yet quite been able to crack because they're difficult. It's difficult, um, but it's needed. I mean, you. I mean, I think over 60, 80 percent after age 60, 80 percent of people have at least one chronic disease and 60 percent have three chronic diseases or something. I mean, that's a big cost to society. Um, and so I think part of our responsibility as an industry is also to help get uh, um, try to get our hands around um, health care costs in general. You know, I, we're fighting the battle on pricing. Um, um, but in general, we have to be developing new therapies for things that are important to society. Um, notwithstanding what we're developing is awesome for the diseases that, that uh, they are being developed for.
1: Yeah. Dennis there. I mean, there, there's actually two threads that I want to pull on there. I, I do want to start with the, the, the chronic disease, because I think as most of us know, I mean, particularly in the U S we suffer from an epidemic of chronic disease. Uh, but, but globally as well. Uh, and so how do you think about there, there certainly there are pharmaceutical interventions for chronic diseases. There's also been sort of a new wave, and this is probably a little outside of your area of expertise. Um, but you know, d- digital therapeutics, um, digital health, right? D- different, um, ways to try to intervene to help people make healthier lifestyle choices through diet, through exercise, not necessarily through a pharmaceutical intervention, but through a a long lasting behavioral modification. Do you think there's anything to that? Or, or do you think, um, or are you really more focused on the pharmaceutical intervention approach?
2: I, um, I, uh, I think there's really something to that and I'm spending more and more time on the digital tech side of things. Um, when you look at, uh, uh, some some of the things that are being developed on that side of the uh, on that side of the ledger, they seem to be working. You look at parasotherapy you know, now. That industry and not pharmaceutical interventions um, is in its infancy a little bit, and there's probably too many of those companies, and we have got to figure out you know where that's all going. But I think it's certainly a lot more than just pharmaceutical um, um, interventions, and therefore I think there's going to be a coming conversion of kind of in digital healthcare, along with the traditional pharmaceutical part of healthcare, care um, that we're really just seeing the part beginning of and we're not talking we're not talking to each other yet but i think we're going to um i think we're going to have to start to talk to each other the third the other area that where we spend most of our money and i think it's going to become a really big area is uh the whole field of longevity i mean the cost of the cost of the last couple of years of life for us is just staggering um and you know most scientists would argue credibly i think that you know no reason that we shouldn't be even living you know past 100 pretty easily we generally we live to 80 or our life expectancy is 80 um and you know we spend so much time kind of thinking about our you know age span and the last 10 years is all in decline you know i have two chronic diseases today then i have three then i have four then i have cancer then it's just a downhill downhill battle you know if we can start thinking more about like health span um and how, how do you stay healthier longer um you know how can you be 80 and still act like you're 50 in terms of exercise and mind and stuff like that. So I see uh, Neil, a convergence of, of, the, of you know, digital health tech and these apps and, and things like that that's going to get combined with pharmaceuticals in these areas, um, uh, particularly um, in mental health.
1: Yeah, and Dennis, I couldn't agree more. And just one quick data point just from from the Bioverse portfolios. we We made an investment in a company called Blue Mesa Health, which is a digital therapeutic targeting, uh, the diabetic and pre-diabetic population. Uh, and they actually had talking about, you know, uh, how those types of companies work with traditional pharma companies. They had a global partnership with Merck, uh, KGA, the, the, the German mark, um, they had rolled this out in conjunction, um, with, uh, Merck's insulin drug. And so the, the idea was that it was a way for Merck to help build a relationship with diabetics or even pre-diabetics before they became full-blown diabetics. And so, you know, that, that seemed to be a very fruitful partnership. So I think we're going to see more and more of those types of opportunities. But Blue Mesa was subsequently acquired by Virgin Health. Uh, I'm sorry, Virgin Pulse. So, you know, companies like Virgin are making a big play in the, sort of the, the digital health space as well. So I think it's, it's really interesting, this convergence that, that you just mentioned. Um, I, I do want to go back and pull on this one other thread from a, a, a prior answer that you gave. And this is um, price controls. You know, it's a hot button topic uh these days in the political arena there there's a, a lot of um you know proposals uh, winding their way through congress at this point uh, it is maybe perhaps the only issue where there's bipartisan support as an investor in this space i mean how do you view these proposed price controls are, are they are they a concern for you
2: um i think they're i think they yeah they're definitely a concern and they have been a concern and i think that we haven't done a good enough job to kind of um, uh, capture correctly the value that we're delivering by these therapeutics. Um, I think that's what's going through the Congress right now is something that the industry can live with. I mean, anything that kind of gets generic, you know, the stuff that we're doing that's bad ought to be put to rest. I mean, we ought to get generics on the market as fast as we can. And you know, 85 or 90 percent of all prescriptions are generics. You know, we shouldn't be playing all these games to keep, you know, keep generics from getting the market, to market. Um, anything to do with pricing that keeps, you know, co-pays low, we ought to be we're, we ought to be supporting. Um, so, um, I think what's being what's being proposed right now, uh, I think is is reasonable. Um and the industry can live with it, but it's 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 an issue that's been around that we just certainly haven't gotten we're just easy punching bags and we just haven't really kind of um uh, been able to tell the story effectively, I don't think.
1: Yeah, I I I think that's certainly true. You know, my, my concern, Dennis, for the, the price controls is you know, if you're limit limit the the price the companies are able to charge for some of these you know, particularly novel, you know, drugs and and therapies, you know, does that limit the upside potential for investors? Right. You know, I mean, particularly, you know, in in the, in the venture game, right. We know this is sort of operates by the power laws and you need, you need that outsized home run to make up for all the losers. And so we artificially limiting the upside of that, that one potential home run. And so obviously that has a depressing effect on the NPV analysis and all those things. So my concern is that it could potentially limit the interest from investors because the upside is, is, is being capped. I guess, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see how that plays out, but that, that is.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And being, being part of bio, we sent a uh, letter that was signed um, by, I think it would be like five, 600 people, you know, making that exact point. Saying you know you're cutting off the nose to spite the face if this happens and therefore <clears throat> that's where that and therefore we didn't we didn't even though people wanted to do reference pricing and letting the pricing right out of the box and all that kind of stuff it didn't happen and um, I think the industry did. A, Decent job of convincing lawmakers that, that, that um, what you suggested might just well happen if they limit if prices controls are put in place right out of the box. So, for the time you now, you can never be you can never get com- be complacent about this stuff. But right now things are looking okay. Yeah. Well, well that, that, that's great. But, you're, but, you're, but you're, yours is the issue. Yours is the issue. Um, and and by the way, I mean, you know, one of the things we haven't dis- we haven't um, explain to people well is that yeah these costs more out of the box and then they're going to be one-tenth the cost for the for the till the end of the world once they go to generic and you know I, and we're having trouble we're having trouble kind of explaining that to people that you know once it goes generic th- these things these things are going to get cheap for till the end of time and we just need to have the you know recoup the investment and make a decent return um you know so don't cut off don't cut off the innovation just you know then worry- worry about what's gonna happen down the road like you
1: yeah, Dennis, and I think that's a, a hugely important point, and I know uh, Peter Kolchinski from RA Capital has sort, of, has sort of beaten the drum about this and wrote a, wrote a really great book, The Great American Drug Deal, talking about the biotech social contract. And I think, I think you know, to your point, I think we've, as an industry, we've done a lousy job of explaining a lot of these things, um, but I think, you know, now is the time, certainly. Um, so let me uh, I think, you know, I'd, I'd like to pivot a little bit here and and, and talk about the JP Morgan conference, because that is that is coming up, you know, it has moved virtual this year, I'd, I'd love to, you know, obviously, from, you know, when you started the conference it's grown exponentially, I think many of us in the industry view it as a, as a great way to sort of kick off the year. Um meet meet with colleagues that you know we meet with annually or or bump into people we haven't seen for many years and certainly gonna miss the in-person events. But would love your perspective on, on the JP Morgan conference, how it's evolved, you know, its utility these days.
2: Um yeah, when uh um uh, it's come a bit of a way since when we started. When we start you know, we started with as I mentioned earlier, there are a few kind of dedicated investors. There weren't that many companies and the investors had to travel around to see each company individually. We didn't have the technology that we have today when the companies had to go see each investor individually. So we wanted to go and, uh, um, uh, you know, just have a little conference where you could get a whole bunch of work done in a short period of time. So the, uh, um, uh, we thought that we thought that January was a good time to start it because it was the beginning of the year, the weather in San Francisco wasn't bad. Um, and, uh, um, it cost us uh, rent at the time rent. We had to rent two rooms and the conference was about three quarters of a day. And we had maybe 40 or 50, uh, um, 40 or 50 people there. Um, and it kind of, it kind of went, it kind of went from there. Um, people liked it. The investors liked it. No, nobody paid any attention to it. Th- and then um, but each year kind of more and more, companies wanted to just talk at it for some reason. And um, uh, and then more and more specialists came into the market. So it kind of got bigger. And then we had to rent a third room and, you know, et cetera. And then and then I don't know, early 90s or something. It became one People started to make big announcements at the conference. You know, Monday, the conference is when you made the big announcement and it became kind of a ritual of guessing what was going to be announced, you know, what big deal, what big merger, what was going to happen um, Mm -hmm. um, at the conference. So then it started to get more and more attention. Um, And this is, uh, you know, showing my age. It was called the Hambrick and Quiz Conference back then, the H&Q Conference. And this was when I was back in my banking days. And, you know, the banks who competed against us then started to, take suites at other hotels to meet with the companies or not uh, other companies that were there and try to steal our clients and all that kind of stuff. Believe it or not, the hotels didn't charge much back at the time. They didn't raise rates or anything like that. It was very deep and uh, um, easy to do. And we ended up having to then move it to two days uh, and three days. Um, And when we did that, there was nothing to do much at night. So, a lot of companies or law firms or any, and lots of different companies started these, um, uh, cocktail parties stuff. And that's how the whole cocktail party thing started when the conference became more than one day. And, and now all of a sudden, you know, it's probably 30, 40, 70, um, um, uh, uh you know, different cocktail parties you can go to at any one time. And that became something everyone wanted to go to because it was the beginning of the year and you could see people you hadn't seen for a while and and things like that. Um, then JP Morgan acquired us in the early 2000s. Um, JP Morgan had a uh, you know different client list than we did at Hamburg and Quist. We were doing the early stage IPOs and the, the kind of up and coming companies, JP Morgan's client base or the big guys, you know, the Pfizer's and the express scripts and Bristol Myers and the like. And so the tone of it changed a little bit. Um, um but by this time it has started to be, it had started to become a zoo. Um, and then prices started to go, uh, um, kind of out of control. And we really started have they started, started to have to limit really people that could go into the into the conference at the Westin because of security or, you know, fire concerns and stuff like that. Um, and consequently the companies that were, and, and the companies were presenting were not the traditional companies that we had, which were the, hopefully the next Moderna or the next Genentech or something like that, but they were more of the kind of big clients of, um, JP Morgan. So Then what happened is that we had all these other satellite conferences started like the biotech showcase and the digital showcase and the China showcase and, and all that kind of stuff. And all that meant was it was going to get more crowded and it did get more crowded and it got more um, uh, expensive and the like. Um, And then even before COVID, the, the drum started beating saying, you know, is it really worthwhile to go here? It's just, it's, it's just, you can't move your shoulder to shoulder is just really efficient for us, particularly when the hotels and everybody else around um, Union Square, around the city, were charging rates that were just untenable for, you know, people to go to. So there started to be a little bit of a backlash saying, I'm not going to go this year, that, you know, this year. Um, and then the last couple of years, it didn't matter because now that's going to be um, um, virtual. It, it will be interesting to see whether this, continue, you know, if we get back to normal next year, whether this continues to be a, a, a must-go-to conference or not. Um I, I don't think anymore that um, people play that game of who's going to announce what on Monday. There's already been some companies before the conference has started here that have announced pre-announced earnings and things like that. We'll wait. We'll see on Monday whether um, there's any big deals or, or the like that are announced. And, you know, and with Technology the way it is today, um, you know do you really need to be there in person? Um, you know we'll see back in the early days when I said there was only a few investors and companies there was uh, I think there's three phone booths in western St Francis, and people would investors would hear um, companies present and then there would be a lineup at the um, telephone booth where yeah. they would call in and either buy or sell stocks. <laughs> And, you know, and the time would be 10 or 12 deep and they would always be complaining, like get off the line and stuff like that. But that's how people um, acted on the information that the companies were telling them in real time. But you had to use the telephone at the Western and there weren't enough of them, for sure.
1: <laughs> Amazing how not just the conference, but I mean, just life in general has evolved since this, that time. Right now, you, you pull out your cell phone or send a text and that's all you have to do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Amazing how not just the conference, but I mean, just life in general has evolved since that time. Right now, you you pull out your cell phone or send a text, and that's all you have to do. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's incredible. You know, I think um, you know, I certainly will will miss the sort of face-to-face gatherings. But I think to your point, you know, with the technology we have these days, you know, these these sorts of large in-person gatherings are are not necessarily must-have. Um, so I'm certainly excited to see see how it, how the conference shape, shapes up. Um, you know, Dennis, I, I think we could probably talk for another two days um, about all these topics. But I do want to be uh, cognizant of your time. And, and so I think with that, I, I would just like to say a huge thank you for joining me on the show today. Thanks for a, a really wide ranging and, and wonderful discussion.
2: Thanks, Neil. Thanks for having me. I, I really enjoyed it.
1: Well, Neil, what did you think? I thought that was a, a, a wonderful, wide-ranging conversation. I think Dennis provided some really valuable perspective on, you know, it's going back to the early days of the biotech industry and, you know, Genentech going public uh, in the 80s and sort of how that kicked off the whole industry uh, and, and really the, the nature of, you know, what it means to be a biotech company, for, ranging from basically a science project to, to a company that has, you know, maybe a, a more credible or mature management team. Uh, you talk, you know, heard Dennis talk about, you know, management team, management team, management team, and then, and, and, you know, that no surprise there. Um, but I, I, I think, you know, you heard him comment on the boom and bust nature of the industry. And while there have been fundamental advances in the science, I think there's no argument there. Um, I think, you know, as you heard him say there, the valuations are, are fulsome at this point. And, and I, I, I do want to correct a comment that I made during the, the podcast. The XBI was uh, not off 30 percent, was, but was off 21 percent last year. So still a, a pretty bad year. Not as not as bad as I had initially thought, though. Um, so, you know, it was a tough year for biotech. Uh, you heard Dennis talk about the boom and bust nature of the industry. So we'll, we'll sort of see where we where we land at the present moment. What surprised you most about what he had to say? Yeah, I mean, I you know, I I think uh we, we talked about a lot, you know, the, the the SPACs I think were were interesting to get his perspective on. Um and so I mean just the sheer number of SPACs out there is is kind of mind mind boggling at this point. Um and so, you know, you heard him talk about the capital market perspective that these things are here to stay. You know, they've been around for a long time. I mean multiple decades so they're nothing new and they they sort of come in in and out of fashion uh, as as far as i know so there's certainly been a resurgence you know you heard dennis talk about there is an urgency to getting a deal done right the clock is ticking on these things and yeah investors have sort of approval power to approve deals but i have limited confidence that a lot of investors in these specs have any sort of wherewithal to properly diligence a investment in a biotech company um, particularly some of these novel companies that we're seeing today that are overlaying, you know, AI or machine learning uh, as, as part of their drug discovery engine and process. So, you know, my concern is these things are going to end in a in a disastrous fashion. Um, not all of them. Some of them will be highly successful, of course. Um, but, you know, retail investors uh, and, and mom and pop may end up you know, holding the bag on some of these things, and so my concern is that you know that may put a damper on things. But as you heard Dennis say, you know the clock's ticking. We'll we'll see what happens over the over the coming months on, on a lot of these things. Um, the the other point that I actually found surprising as well, we we, we talked a little bit about price controls. Uh, you heard Dennis talk about the letter that Bio sent um, to to Congress, basically outlining some of the concerns about price controls could limit innovation and investment in the industry, but. Actually, it sounded like Dennis was okay with a lot of some of the proposals that were um, working their way through Congress at the moment. Um, they weren't that draconian, um, limiting co-pays. You know, I, I, obviously, I think that that is a net positive. Definitely need to limit co-pays. Um, so, you know, it didn't sound like some of what is being proposed right now would necessarily be that bad for the industry. So, I actually I did find that surprising.
0: You had asked about speculation versus innovation as drivers of activity, and you also talked about the inevitable calling out process. What do you think that might look like?
1: Uh, I think it might not look very pretty at the end of the day. I mean, you heard Dennis talk about you know the significant valuations accruing to preclinical stage companies, you know, if you're looking at it on on a multiples basis, uh, you know these companies should be generating, you know, 150 million dollars of revenue today, and you know they're maybe preclinical and nowhere towards even FDA approval, let alone having a yeah, a commercial product on the market. So the calling out process, I think, is is going to be a reality check in terms of how some of these companies are valued uh, and what they're valued on. You know, companies are always valued on on forward earnings and on on growth and on you know progress. Um, so I, I think there is certainly a lot of enthusiasm for some of the fundamental advancements in the underlying science, and I think that's warranted. Right, some of the novel gene therapies and cell therapies, for example, some of the some of the movement towards more precision-based medicine. You heard Dennis talk a little bit about. Uh, there's been a big focus, obviously, in the industry within rare diseases and oncology, uh, and 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 defining smaller and smaller patient populations. Um, but what does that how does that all translate toward how these companies are being valued right there There, there seems to be some perhaps irrational exuberance uh, for the, the the level of valuations these companies are garnering now that don 't connect to sort of the the, the, the the underlying fundamentals, even though the science is exciting
0: at the same time there 's still plenty of capital available for these companies. As an investor, how do you think about issues like froth and sustainability of an investment and ultimately your ability to achieve an exit?
1: Yeah, I mean, these these are all really important points. And, you know, my, my biggest concern is, is you know, the, the more capital that's flowing into an industry that can often uh, predict, um, um, let's say... Uh, Uh, not as outsized returns, or it could certainly dampen future returns, right? All all the money sort of chasing the same things. That means you're investing at higher valuations, right? And at some point, um, you know the the rubber's gonna meet the road and there, there's not gonna be all of these you know massive exits to support these high valuations where investors are are uh, you know entering their, their investments or or their cost basis. So you know we'll see how things play out. that um, there's certainly a lot of interest, as you heard us talk about, from family offices, from hedge funds, from folks that t- traditionally don't invest in the private markets or haven't touched early stage biotech that are that are doing it on a regular basis today. So Again, I have mixed feelings. I think it's a net positive, right? Because it means more R&D dollars to, to develop potentially life-saving treatments. But from an investor perspective, you know, it, it feels bubbly. Um, and so that does cause me some concern.
0: Well, until next time. Thanks, Danny. Thanks for listening. The BioVerge podcast is a product of BioVerge Inc., an investment platform that funds visionary entrepreneurs with the aim of transforming health care, BioVerge provides access and enables everyone to invest in highly vetted healthcare startups on the cutting edge of innovation, from family offices and registered investment advisors to accredited and non-accredited individuals. To learn more, go to BioVerge.com. This podcast is produced for BioVerge by the Levine Media Group. Music for this podcast is provided courtesy of the Jonah Levine Collective. All opinions expressed in this podcast by participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinion of BioVerge, Inc. or its affiliates. The participants' opinions are based upon information they consider reliable, but neither BioVerge or its affiliates warrants its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied on as such. Nothing contained in accompanying this podcast shall be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation to purchase any security by BioBridge, its portfolio companies, or any third party. Past performance is not indicative of future results.